Hello and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts, Lucy Davis and Benjamin Holden. Today we have an unbelievably exciting guest on the podcast. Ash Dykes is an explorer, extreme athlete, motivational speaker and three times world first record holder. Ash recently headlined Global News by becoming the first person to hike the entire length of the Yangtze River in China. This is a 4,000 mile journey that took him 352 days. He faced bears, altitude sickness, wolves, landslides and blizzards. Ash's story of human endurance is hands down one of the most fascinating chats we've ever had on the podcast. And we just want to say a massive thank you for Ash for jumping on with us today. If you want to hear more about Ash's incredible adventures, then his new book, Mission Possible, A Decade of Living Dangerously, is linked below on Amazon. Finally, we just want to say a huge thank you to Gymshark Regent Street Store for once again hosting us this week. We've got some amazing guests lined up over the next six weeks, so make sure to hit that subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to and stay up to date with all of our episodes. Last resort. Yeah. Yeah. Ash, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great a to fellow, be here. A fellow neighbour yeah. and, and Welshman, so it's, it's funny that we should yeah. collaborate for the first time down in London. I know, right? In London, we've been next door for timing. years. timing. That was just poor timing from our part, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Like, when <laughs> we say we're neighbours, like, nobody is from North Wales or Chester and, yeah. like, they're just not. And then Ash has just moved to London and we're podcasting in yeah. London and we thought, oh, mm -hmm. bye right. neighbour. <laughs> yeah, and then when I saw your message and you were like, I'm right on the border, I was like, well, I'm moving to London I'm this not weekend. anymore. <laughs> We, we often talk about getting your steps in yeah but you've you've taken this to a whole new level give um give all listeners a little bit of of a taste or flavor of the insanity yeah so it's been a busy 10 years pretty much just over a decade now i've been doing lots of different dangerous extreme and often reckless adventures around the world um, but the three that stand out the most was the three records. So it was a, a 1,500 mile hike across Mongolia, taking in the Altai Mountains, Gobi Desert and, Al and the Mongolian Steppe, sort of pulling an 18 stone trailer behind me that I needed to survive. The second was Madagascar, uh, what 1,600 miles, took 155 days, sort of machete in hand, hunting, gathering, hacking through the bush. Almost lost my life too many times on that journey. And the latest was the Yangtze River, which was sort of a 4,000-mile Guinness World Record hike that took 352 days. So a lot of walking, a lot of survival situations, a lot of near-death experiences. But, you know, I made it. I made it. <laughs> so, so basically, Bear Grylls is an absolute bitch compared to what you've <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of unfathomable, those three things, and we're going to dive into all of mm, them. Yeah. Before you kind of decided to do any of these things, to do it in the first place, you're not an average human. Like that, <laughs> they're incredible things that you've done and that's why they're records. What made you even want to do the first one? Like what was that first, do you know what? I'm just gonna go and walk for 1,500 miles yeah. in a desert. Yeah, you know what? I think it kind of creeped up on me gradually. It was a very long process in terms of, you know, I remember being in high school, Brunellian there, North Wales, Old Colwyn on the coast, and then realising, okay, let's go to, to college after this to do a diploma in outdoor education. I did that for two years, and whilst everyone was then going on to university uh, or the military, I was kind of 
realizing that I learned far more through sort of practical hands-on experience because that's what the college course was about. It was a lot of practical stuff where if I made mistakes, I would learn from it and obviously try never to make the same mistake twice. And from there, I just had this wild idea to sort of go traveling. And at first, it was more in a typical travel sense of book a around-the-world trip, you know, go the usual way, stay yeah. on the coaches, you know, stay in these sort of safe travel groups. And after two weeks of being out there traveling, I left at age 19, worked multiple different jobs, fish and chip shop. I was a lifeguard. I was waiting on three different jobs, cycling to and from work every day. Uh, I eventually set off age 19 and I realized I was very much on the beaten track, you know, sort of the same stories, same photos, same experiences as everyone else. And I was kind of like, right, I want to do something different. So it was very gradual. It wasn't I didn't go out traveling to start doing these crazy adventures. It kind of sort of organically grew bigger and bigger from cycling across Vietnam and Cambodia with a $10 bicycle to hacking through the jungle sort of illegally from Thailand to Myanmar and learning how to survive in the jungle with a Burmese hill tribe that were also trying to migrate to Thailand to hiking the Himalayas again illegally with no permit on the border of Pakistan and India. When um, you say illegally, is that as in... I know you're. I know you're not supposed to do things that are illegal. As in, would they just like shoot you if they found you? Kind yeah, of vibe. Potentially, yeah. So with India, when we were trekking the Himalayas, there they were trying to sell us a permit, and I think it's legit. But at the t at the time, I was on a shoestring budget, and I didn't know whether they were trying to con me to pay money for a little sort of paper certificate. And now you can trek in the hills. I was kind of like, what? The yeah. mountains are for everyone, you know. Let's go. But then realizing how close we are to the border, I knew it was a bit of a risk. Um, but anyway, we ignored the permit, we set off, and the guy actually said, look, if you're going go to go against my word, take my advice that if you come across the Pakistan army that border the uh, mountains there between Pakistan and India, and if they, you know, yeah. they catch you, hold the gun at you, go down on your knees, put your thumbs behind your ears and say, Allah Harigbi, repeatedly, which means Lord have mercy on me, and they might let you go. And that's when I was kind of like, <laughs> you know, I looked at my friend and I was like, do you think he's serious? <laughs> or is he having his own? Give us the, the paper. The, yeah, right. Yeah. The reason why Lucy's interested in this is because anything that sounds illegal or dangerous, she's just, she's like the biggest flapper in the world. So she's the type of person if you walked out of Tesco while paying for the plastic bag, that's like you, crammed. You're going back in. Her, so. Got, yeah. yeah. You're going back Got, in to yeah. pay for yeah. 10p plastic Wait, bag. Yeah. Out of those three that you talked about, Ash. Yeah. Which at the time were the most difficult? I know that the Yangtze one was the longest, but you obviously previously that I'd had a lot more mental experiences. Mm. You've been through hardship. You'd built up this resilience and almost like this mental calluses to be able to deal with things that come up. Mm. Whereas when you first experience something without that previous thing to lean back on, it can often hit you a bit harder. Yeah. So with that in mind, which which kind of one jumps out to you and think, Do you know what that was? Yeah, that yeah. Was no, I get you. I think out of all three, they were they were all very much different. And I do, I must say, I do believe if I didn't build up those track habits, I guess it's like with any industry, right? If you don't build up that experience and those track habits, I would have definitely died on one of the three bigger, bigger journeys. Um, you know, previously I'd faced sort of dehydration, sleep deprivation. I'd really pushed my body on much shorter adventures. Um, but then when it came to the bigger expedition, especially Mongolia, Mongolia was the first. I was 23. My friend didn't want to do it. Um, a previous guy who, who was a Navy soldier had attempted three times but failed on all three occasions. And I was nothing due, but... Due a, to what? Um, dehydration. 
Okay. Yeah, so he got evacuated because he, this, the well was dry, no water left, and, you know, they, they took him out. So I knew that there were these very serious, life-threatening situations that I would face. And I was, a at that point, 23, I was a, a scuba diving Muay Thai fighter living in Thailand. You know, I'd never been to a desert. I didn't have military training. So I would say Mongolia, for me, mentally was the toughest challenge because that was the first big one where I knew there were wolves. I knew there were going to be sandstorms, snow blizzards. I knew I'd face isolation maybe over a week or two weeks without seeing a single human. And I knew that the, the water wells can, you know, be dry. And how would I remedy that? Uh, because it's one thing talking about, it's like that, you know, when you see things happen on TV and you're like, oh, he should have done this, he should have done that, or yeah. put me in that situation, I'll do better. And then when you're actually out there, it's that almost shock of capture, like, whoa, this is grim. You know, this is a very serious situation. Take, get me off this expedition. Yeah. You almost hit this fight or flight and this high adrenaline, stress, anxiety. And I think building up the, the calluses, as you mentioned, is sort of dealing with that and sticking to the plan to what you've set out to do without coming back home, having people tap you on the shoulder saying, oh, you tried your best. So for me, if I set out to do the Mongolia trip, which the, was the most challenging mentally, I had to get it done no matter what. Um, but then again, you know, they, they keep kept continuing to, to grow bigger in, in size. The Madagascar, well, well, we'll get onto that, but that had its own set of challenges. And then well, the, What do you think pushed you through it more then? Was it the the ambition to succeed or the fear of failing? I would say it was both of those for sure. I think, you know, I remember coming up with the idea when I was in Thailand, uh, thinking, you know, what, you know, I've been on the beaten track is what I was thinking. I've, I've traveled around Southeast Asia, Australia. Um, I've done a few adventures and those few adventures that I did really sort of stood out. I was now on the tourist track teaching people how to scuba dive from all over the world. They were sort of looking to tick scuba diving off the bucket list. And I remember thinking with all of the previous adventures, I, I breezed through it despite the challenges and, and sort of the severity. And I remember thinking, let's go one up. Let's do a much bigger, mightier expedition in a country that is unfamiliar that no one really goes to and let's see if I can if I can do that so it was never on my list as a youngster it was just when I realized that actually I, the Vietnam cycle the jungle survival all of the things that I did the Himalayas um you know I, I was okay I, I've, I've got further to push and so that it was it was the curiosity of knowing how far I can go. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure, like, can I do this? Can I do that? But it was also the, the fact of setting out on something so big, much bigger than myself, something that people have tried but failed at. And that, again, that curiosity, like, can, can I make it? You, I try and envision, and I've seen pictures, you're pulling 120 kilograms worth of your things. Mm. 120 kilograms on a sled when you even push it for 20 meters is really hard yeah, yeah. and you walked was it 1500 yes. miles through yeah. desert and how do you I, I i don't understand how you you survive it and was this on your own that was fully solo and unsupported yeah on my own completely as in when i say that there's no van following nearby um the only people i would come across are the actual nomads living out there in their sort of goods their white felt tents and Effectively, the insurance was invalid, so evacuation was almost exempt. 
So if I got into danger, I, I step on the back end of a snake and it bites me. I would need to wait at least three to four days for my logistics manager to get to me if he found me in time and then another day or two for him to, to get me out. You'd be dead. I'd be dead. Wouldn't yeah. you? That yeah. slowly is the uh, ethos. Yeah, so exactly. I, so pulling... What what's what are you pulling? So what did you take? How do, <laughs> how do you know what to take for that yeah. period of time? I studied sort of previous explorers who had done sort of man-hauling journeys, you know, where they pulled stuff behind yeah. them, whether it's the, the poles or the deserts. And pretty much the previous guy to attempt it had, con, uh, had put together some form of desert cart or trailer mm. with wheels that were puncture-proof. Um, but I think he, his was pretty well made, which meant it was like light, the frame of it, but he still took heavy stuff out there. Um, but at that point, to be brutally honest, I came back from Thailand, age 23, to attempt Mongolia, but I had no more than 200 pounds in my account. So I actually moved back in with my parents. Um, I remember selling diving equipment, but again, it only got me 200 pounds. And I couldn't afford to get sort of a light frame trailer. So I called up a, a family friend, uh, and he he built in his back garden a mild, crazy. a mild steel trailer, which with nothing in it on an empty load, it's already 40 kilograms. How, how much did you weigh at the time? Uh, I was probably about 70 kilograms. And you can see I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, yeah. not the biggest guy. Not a big guy yeah. twice your body weight. Yeah, yeah. What, 18 stone? That's like a world heavyweight boxer, isn't it? They're about 16, 17, 18 stone. It's probably like having a Tom Stoltman in there, isn't it? Yeah, world's strongest man. It's like him when you're pulling him through yeah. the desert. Yeah, pretty much. And he's sort of pivoted on the, you've got the wheels either side. So he's pretty much pivoted. It's the wheels that have taken the weight, but you've still got to pull it. And the most difficult part was going through the Gobi Desert where the thin wheels that I got were sinking in the soft sand. Really? So then it is almost like pulling a concrete block through hell because it's like 40 plus degrees Celsius. It's, um, it gets nasty and it, it is in the Gobi with that I almost lost my life. From dehydration. Yeah, from dehydration. I think, you know, over the Altai Mountains, bearing in mind, it's got no brakes either, this trailer. And so you're pulling it <laughs> you up. You are the brake, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're pulling it up over the mountains. And then after three weeks, I've lost even more weight, as you can imagine. I'm getting in about 1,800 calories a day, tops. How many? 1,800 kilocalories per day. From, like even even just, even just to survive, though, you need... Yeah. A good as an average male who's not walking across the desert yeah, every you day. Need like, like three two, to four. Yeah. Really, if you if you're working out, if you're training. Whereas with me, I took five and a half weeks worth of ration packs. Um, and I remember it got so bad in the Gobi Desert that I took peanuts with me and I would take five peanuts of an evening. Measure five out each time. I would measure five out each time. How many how many calories were the ration packs? The ration packs were six hundred. So you'd have what? Three of those per day. I would have three. Uh, no, I'd have two ration packs. And then I would have like the snacks on top of that, which mm. would be the peanuts, which would be maybe a protein bar. But again, they ran out in the desert. And then I was down to um, the ration packs only. The two ration packs, which depending on the meal is six to 800 calories per pack. And, and then, so I was drastically, I think I lost about 12 kilograms in 78 days. And then for your water intake... How, how did, there's no water in the desert? Yes, so we, we downloaded these Russian, <laughs> these Russian military maps um, that identify certain water points, confirmed and unconfirmed water points along the way. So the confirmed water source is, okay, 
that's where we can definitely get water from. But the unconfirmed water sources were always a risk. So what I would do as I was walking through, but, so let me paint the picture really. So you've got the trailer, you've done three weeks in the Altai Mountains and it's about minus 15 degrees Celsius. So I've not been drinking much water because I'm feeling cold. It feels like I don't really need to drink much water, which is really bad to do. Say again. You feel cold. Minus yeah, 15. I was cold, minus ah. 15, you know, and I wasn't drinking much water because I was feeling, yeah. you know. Um, and then by the time I got to the desert, I think I was probably already slightly dehydrated. And now this was the worst time because it went from minus 15, probably within a week or two, to 40 plus degrees Celsius. And a spicy. Yeah, and now I was relying on the confirmed water sources, but there was always that anxiety of, I will be eventually coming across an unconf unconfirmed water source but that's fine. I top up at the confirmed water source. I've got enough water to last me through. However, I didn't because it's the Gobi Desert. It's obviously really hot. I'm pulling the trailer and you go through your fluids. And then by the time I came across the water source, which was completely dry, I had in a, in a container, let's say it's about 20 liter container. I had about a liter, two liters, something like that left to last me to the next water source. And at that point, I was already in a bad state, so to rock up upon a dry well was was really bad news. Um, I was dehydrated, I was hallucinating, I was delirious, and as I pushed on, I could almost feel my organs drying up. And really? it was it was that bit there that you know really scared me. The, that was the, the hardest most. point. That was the hardest point on that journey. Um, there was no breeze, there was no sort of clouds. I couldn't get any natural shelter. Uh, I had to physically hide under my desert cart to hide from the sun, which could only fit my upper body and my legs would just be burning. And you have to stay fully clothed. So you're wearing a shirt, trousers, socks, you know, hat, popped collar. It's, it's, it was a, awful. And it was at that point I realized if I don't keep getting up from underneath the trailer, I'm going to die out here in the Gobi Desert. Just cook. I'll just cook, yeah. And I didn't believe I could survive six days Whereas at the beginning, I mentioned the logistics manager, right? He could maybe mm. get to me and take me out and it'd take four to six days. I just didn't believe that I could survive six days, but I did believe I could survive four days and I had only four days to walk to the next water source, which was confirmed, which had people where I could really rest up. How would you mentally... Jesus, making me thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> making me thirsty, guys. Get your water in. Juice. <laughs> I might need some battery juice. No. Oh. I don't know, Carl. <clears throat> Adam's on it, everybody, don't worry. <laughs> Carry on, Ben. Thank you, mate. How do you, how do you men mentally kind of digest and face that? Because even like for, for people listening, mm. they will go through things in life that they think I can't do that. I can't get to the end. That I can't see myself pushing past that because it's a level of hard that I've not experienced before. Yeah. And obviously, everyone's level of hard is different. What you've gone through is very, very extreme. How do you come up against those obstacles, obstacles, and those next bits, mm. and 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 just think I'm going to lean into this, mm -hmm. and you're going to push through it blindly anyway, even though I've never yeah. had anything, any past evidence that I can. Yeah, exactly. and that was the fear with that journey is no past evidence. And I think people face that every day in their sort of day-to-day -day life, don't they? And with what I did, as cliche as it sounds, I broke my goals down. And when I say that, I mentioned I couldn't, I couldn't picture four days. Like four days, yes, I could survive it, but four days of pure agony without water or sort of the last remaining dribbles of hot water that was remaining. 
I could, you know, I found it difficult to, to digest that. But what I could picture and visualize and what I could effectively see was a hundred meters. And so I remember just looking ahead of me and, and marking a feature point, right? I would say that's a hundred meters. So I'd get out of my trailer. Sometimes I'd be under my trailer for an hour, um, fearing to get out in the sun again. And so I decided to break it down into hundred meter sections and then allow no more than five minutes instead of an hour underneath my trailer. And by breaking the goal down, I was pushing. And yes, it's agonizing and it's 100 meters at a time. It was really slow and painful, but I was getting closer and closer to that water source. And I think that is my message to everyone who's facing a struggle. Just keep pushing that little bit further. Um, and I do that now. And I have done it with Madagascar. I've done it with the Yangtze to, you know, for much bigger expeditions. And just coming home and in the day-to-day -day world, you know, tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow is another day. Just yeah. breaking it down, getting closer, ticking things off the list. Um, and that's pretty much how I survived that. You know, I did just about make it into the community. Um, I collapsed. I had to rest up for eight days. Wow. My urine was pretty much black at that point, as you can imagine. What, what's that called? Is it um, when it goes black? Yeah, was there yeah almost. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really bad. And I remember thinking like, fuck. But I also remember having that sort of I'm not quitting mentality. I remember my logistics manager called me up and he was like, have you have you thought of just sort of packing it in because you, you got really lucky to survive this stint? And I remember he recorded the conversation actually and put it out. Really? Yeah. And I was there saying, look, and I was, you know, in an awful, it was the next day. And I remember saying, it doesn't matter if it takes me a month, two months to recover. I'm fully recovering and I'm pushing on because this was a world first, right? So it wasn't a speed record. It's like, if you do it, you're going to be the first yeah. person recorded to do it. So I didn't have, uh, time was, was on my so side. So it was a tortoise you know? race, not the hair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The reason why I asked before about, was it the kind of accomplishment or the, the, the pain of failure that I pushed you? I think there's a, I'm sure my friend Chris Williamson was talking about this. They did a, a study with rodents or rats mm. um, in a cage and they, I think they attached something to the rear of them in terms of how it could measure pull of right. the rats. And in the first study, they put food in, in front of them to the measure the force of the pull. Yeah. Read to that. And then they did one with a cat behind them to, to measure when they're running away from, from failure or death. Got you. And the pull was far bigger when the cat was there rather than the cheese. Wow. And I think it's been applicable to, to human beings as well. And that's why I was wondering, yeah. what do you think drove you during those circumstances mm. as well? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, that sounds pretty bang on. I think the the hunger to survive mm -hmm. obviously is, is much greater. And when there's sort of, you're staring death in the face. I, I, do, I think we've all got what it, what it takes. I think it's many people are sort of covered in a layer of duff, but, dust. But I do think that if you put someone in such a, sort of extreme environment, they'll be really shocked with how they cope. Um, and I think that's a good thing as well. You know, I think we thrive on development as humans. We're always sort of wanting to push ourselves. Um, and so I would, you know, I would also say that we're far much more, we're much more capable than we each give ourselves credit for, you know? And that's what I learned out there. And I remember coming back from Mongolia and thinking, okay, well, I didn't die. I think I've got more. You know, what's, what's next type of thing. Uh, and so it's only, whether you, it's only when you unlock new doors that you realize you can actually go much further, um, which was exciting, but I do know that I got close with that one. But yeah, that's, that's interesting with the- I, th I think it's like what you've highlighted there is like even through evolution, like we've come from the savannas and 
dealing with all the different dangers that are in society these days we don't have to yeah. deal with, it, which is why I think a lot of people label us like the softest generation maybe that there mm. has been so far. Yeah. So it's interesting that you put yourself back yeah. in some of those innate dangers that we've we've previously been through. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You also got close to death a second time, mm. I think with Madagascar. Was Madagascar a year? Yeah, that was about later? a year later. Yeah. A year later, you, what was the Madagascar trek? It was that walking. Was, yeah, that was the walking the entire length of Madagascar. Uh, but via the interior, sort of through the desert and then the jungle up north, uh, summiting the eight highest mountains. And it, it took 155 days and it was around 1,600 miles. And that, it's funny because it's only, what, an extra 100 miles than Mongolia? But yeah. duration-wise, it was almost double the, dis the, double the duration. Is that purely because of the yeah, the elevation? Terrain. Yeah, it was wild. They, I honestly, out of the 155 days, I do not believe there was one day that was just simply a pleasant day's trek. And it's hilarious because people think, you know, oh, Ashley loves his walking. I can't stand walking. It's very boring. You know, I'm just like, but it's shows your poison well, yeah. right? Yeah, wow. yeah. Because I think Good a lot choice. of people, <laughs> I think a lot of people sort of see these expeditions and think they're sort of just walking. Because it is sort of a hiking, but the majority of the time it's overcome challenges. It's the survival. You know, one minute you're being stalked by a pack of wolves. Next minute you're in Bear County. Next minute you've got nomadic drifters sort of ch chasing you down or desert storms, uh, snow blizzards, you know. What What do you mean with a pack of wolves just behind you? That, that uh, just doesn't sit well with anyone. <laughs> yeah, just, we've moved straight yeah, to China. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> so that was um, in China about two weeks in. Um, we were sort of venturing down this, this remote valley um, and we hadn't seen anyone in, in days, you know, but we came across these Tibetans and they were trying to sort of stress something to us. And, you know, they looked worried. They were doing like sort of <laughs> wolf <Unjustly>. impressions <laughs> and like ripping their own throat oh. out and pointing at us. So we kind of guessed they meant something to do with wolves or bears or some wild animals, you know, snow leopards perhaps. Um, but we just sort of ignored it because we didn't understand what they were saying. We were like, yeah, bye, thank you. Smiling wave. Yeah, smiling wave, cracked on walking. But Kyle, my videographer, because we were filming for Nat Geo on that journey, wow. he had caught all of it. Um, and for the next two days, we were followed by a, a pack of wolves and they were constantly on our tail for two days. And we're like... Well, you could hear them. Yeah, we could hear them. Yeah, and they were always in close proximity to us. And they normally cover much greater distance than, than man. Um, and then anyway, fast forward, they, they went, we were okay, but fast forward, I think it was five, six months, the editing team in Beijing get a hold of the footage and a girl within the, the office speaks Tibetan and she, she called me up and says, you have no idea what he was saying, the, the guy who was like doing the throat, but he was saying that only yesterday a pack of wolves killed a local right down that same valley that you were about to go down. And whether it was the same oh. pack or not, we don't know, but it was a bit, a bit sketchy, you know? Be, be, more than a, a bit sketchy. Sketchy. Yeah. There's, there's some evidence, hard <laughs> yeah. evidence there to, yeah. to avoid that. What, wow. what are you thinking that two-week period then? Are, are you anticipating the potential that you're going to run into this? And also, yeah. what what have you got to defend yourself against? Or what 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 would it, what would you have done had you run into that situation where you'd come face-to-face -face with this pack of wolves? You know, there's not a lot you can do. You can sort of make your fire at night, You've, you've got a knife, which is once you get into a city, it's just confiscated anyway. And then a local passes you a new knife because of the dangers. But you're kind of like, what's this knife going to do to a pack of wolves? So I think with that, it's just a case of being big, showing no weakness. And that's what I think they were looking for. 
I was lucky to have someone with me during that, that stint, but probably about 60, 70% of the time I was walking alone. And I do think that if I was on my own and if I was limping due to, you know, blisters or whatnot, they would maybe approach and get closer because they'd be like, ah, you know, if there's a weakness yeah. and he's on his own. But there was two of us and we were only two weeks in, so we, we were both pretty fit and strong yeah. and like there was no sign of weakness. So I think they just thought, no, it's too much of a risk because wolves won't, you know, it's a bit of a risk for wolves to attack people, but it does happen and it did happen, um, you know, right before we headed down. Could you hear them at night? Yeah, we could. We could hear them during the day. Yeah. That's what I mean. They were howling away. Yeah. And at first it was kind of like, wow, you know, this is the first time I've heard wolves in the wild. So it was in some way awe-inspiring, but at the same time it was like, you know, a few hours on, they're still doing it and they're still pretty close. You're kind of like, hmm, what are they up to? But uh, they were they were all right. How, how how different is China as like a a place and a and a, a culture and a society? Because we've we've never been, and you hear mm-hmm. stories from from being over in the UK. And we've had another guy called Nick Butter. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he did a marathon in every country, and he told us quite a few things about yeah. China. I mean, I dread to, to know what happened if you two were pissed in a bar together. You end up yeah, moonwalking really the world something or something crazy. like that. But yeah. how 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 different is it's, it's, it's very different. It's kind of like its own world. Everything about it is, you know, they have their own social media channels. They have their own news. Obviously, they don't have Google. They have Baidu. Uh, and these social media channels are legit. You know, they're, they're somewhat better than ours. They've got like WeChat, which you can do everything. You can pay. You can scan the taxi. Like it's all done. Like we're catching up. But yeah. I think they were there already five, ten years ago, you know. Um, but again, it's very closed off. It's very positive. The news out there is all sort of upbeat. So if there's some dramatic sort of violence going on in China, they're very quick to hide it, throw it under the rug. Um, even the news channels, you know, how we sort of report and it's all dramatic. It's yeah. the drums, it's BBC News, and it's always negative, isn't we it? We like creating the moral panic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're the opposite. With them, it's, um, it's mainly just positive and sort of little signs and they make it quite humorous as well with the different sound effects um and i guess there's pros and cons with both but i do think that people sort of need to know what's going on in their country but they kind of just do their best to hide that um but it's scary the power that they've got you know my most recent expedition was following um the length of the great war i got back three months ago that was twenty-one thousand kilometers but it wasn't it wasn't walking it was sort of um Lots of different activities from scuba diving to martial arts to mountain biking, more sort of going to my roots um, whilst following the war. But it was the end of 2022 and it was in full lockdown. Really? Full lockdown. God, but that was scary. It was, yeah, it was scary and it was very difficult. And on arrival, there was like 17 days I was hit with in quarantine isolation and then we were working with the government so we had to bounce to different parts so we couldn't follow the wall in one succinct journey it was back and forth across the country because cities and provinces were going into lockdown banging on our door at like two three o'clock in the morning um my executive producer was saying pack your stuff we've got two hours to leave the city because we got heads up from the government it was relentless and it was constant and filming every day just so that we could finish the project because we just didn't know what the next day would bring. Did you feel like you had eyes on you then in terms of what you were doing in China and the way that you were documenting things and the yeah. way you were moving? Yeah, and I and I did. I did have eyes. Uh, I think we were the first, one of, one of the first international TV projects Fuck. to film in, in China. 
the rest of the, and I was nervous because I thought, oh, we're next to get my visa declined because we had so many different producers and, and talent going over to China and they were just canceled, like, no, no entry. Um, but I got lucky and that was because the government looked through all of my social media, uh, looked through all the podcasts, everything that I've ever spoken mm -hmm. about of China. Um, and I sort of play on the line, you know, I, I, like, even, even yeah. now I had to sort of be, yeah. be, be careful with what I say, but... Um, and that's because we're putting together the, the show, you know. But mm, of course. I think if you, you play on the line and don't go too much on one side, which I never really did, even on the Joe Rogan podcast, I was very aware with how I was, how I was talking. And they went through all of that and they gave me the green light. And that was pretty much the only reason I got into, into China. I suppose you have a lot of love for the place that you've spent a lot of time as well and accomplished yeah. a lot of things. Yeah, and I do. The people are great. The people there that live there, they're so helpful. They're so friendly. It's, um, there's a lot of opportunities in China. You know, I've got immense support from China that I, I you know, struggling to get out in the West. Uh, but the China have always sort of had my back. They've supported. Um, the people, again, have been so sort of welcoming. So that's the pro of it. But the, the downside is sort of the restrictions and the pressure that the government puts on the people. Um, but when you're there, it seems like a pleasant place to live. So when I came back in 2019, I was kind of like, hmm, China could be an option. But since 2020, I'm like, no, no, definitely Was it not. in 2019 that that was your biggest yeah. expedition, the 4,000-mile right. Yangtze River? Yeah. Is that how you say it? Yeah, you Yangtze nailed it, River. yeah. Everyone um, gets that so wrong. Yeah, I was, so I was looking up on that before, yeah. the, uh, before the podcast. Yeah. And... 4,000 miles. Mm. How long did that take you? 352 days, pretty much a year. Yeah. A year, but that wasn't sh solid walking. This was, it was a very big hype in China. So each city that I came to, I would sort of stop for book signings, um, for presentations, for marketing and media to sort of build up um, more hype ready for completion in, in Shanghai. And so that would sometimes take a week or two weeks in a city to go through all of that. Um, so it was very different. I would say the first six months of the journey was, you know, were, were, were wild and very extreme. But the second six months, it was more sort of cities. It was more sort of beating the tarmac. Um, so a different challenge. But the first six months, what we had, 10 of the 16 people that joined me sporadically at different parts evacuated. Take 10 of 16? 10 like of 16 different people through, that joined through me. Through what? Through altitude sickness, um, cold temperatures or just fear of wildlife, which was a big one, or just sort of um, struggling to overcome challenges. You know, one of my UK photographers flew out there and I was super buzzed up about this because he was joining me for two to three weeks and he lasted six hours. Six hours? On day number one, we had a big sort of landslide to overcome. And it's funny because I'm kind of sort of happy-go-lucky, you know, let's do this, that'll be a cool challenge, we'll get through it. And so I think my mindset plays a huge part and I crack on and I get through it. Um, but then I, I forget, you know, when he comes over, this isn't his industry. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a, he's a photographer, he's not had to overcome challenges. And so when he saw that landslide, I was very aware of that. And it was a case of like seeing the fear on his face. And I, I gave him two options, but I said, you know, get rid of any pride, any ego. You've got to look at those two options and, and tell me because I don't know you, you know yourself, if you can overcome any one of those two options. But, you know, don't, don't lie because it... If you slip, you're down in the river after a big tumble. Um, and I left him to it for about five or ten minutes. And he made the right choice. He sort of scouted it. He's got, he had a wife and a and child back at home and was like, yeah, no, 
I'm not doing that. I was like, excellent, you know, good choice. We'll get you back and send you back home. Did you have to cut out anyone yourself from the expedition in terms of where you feel like you were carrying baggage then because it was difficult to pull other people through as well as yourself? Yeah, yeah, that happened a lot. And, you know, even ex-military in China joined me and even they were bailing. And it was two ex-military officers that joined me. And once they bailed, I just stopped then. That was a realization of, okay, this is silly. I'm just allowing people on board and someone's going to die. Um, and so I, I put an end to it and stopped people from joining for, the, for those six months. And then I opened it up the last six months because then you, you're sort of coming across more cities. It's no bears, no snow blizzards, no altitude because you're at altitude of over 5,100 meters, which is similar to base camp with wolves, with bears, with snow, you know, so it's, it's intense. Did you come across any bears? We did. I came across fresh footprints in the morning and the bears were the most scary. They were terrifying. Okay, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen that. I'm sure we put out recently, Joe Rogan put out a clip of a bear, like someone set up this video footage in the woods. Yeah. Have you seen it, Cal? In, it the, in the night time. like a fucking monster. Massive. Like, it's <laughs> yeah, honestly. It's huge. Like, yeah. Bigger than I ever thought. Of. You know when you, have you seen the film? Brother Bear. No. Not babies films. No, but that's <laughs> ha- the bears about. aren't that big in that. No, no, <laughs> the film where Leonardo DiCaprio fights the bear. The Revenant. Revenant. Yeah, and yeah. you watch that and it gives you some false hope that you could fight a bear. Yeah. When you see the size of this fucking gorilla slash bear. You don't have it's like, a no chance. chance. No chance. No chance at all. Like, again, the locals were gifting me knives saying, oh, take this. I'm like, fuck is this knife against <laughs> a bear? It's going to do nothing, you know? Um, so they, I think they, they were my biggest fear of the whole journey, just the bears. And sometimes I'd walk in the middle of the night and I'm there, I'm there with my whistle, just blowing my whistle and making loud noises, oh, you know, yeah. shouting my walking poles, just hitting them on the ground. But I took walking poles because of the Tibetan mastiffs. So it's not just the bears. I forgot to mention the Tibetan mastiffs. These are sort of like semi-wild guard dogs that protect the livestock from bears, wolves and um, snow leopards. So the, the Tibetans keep them as dogs. No, yeah, yeah, the Tibetans keep them as dogs. Yeah, yeah, but they keep them outside. Their their fur grows. They are aggressive, and I had to fight a couple off, like throw rocks at them. Really? And I didn't have a, a stick, so I was like, I need two sticks. And I How big like, do these get? These these get. They're probably like what one, one meter, one meter plus maybe. They're big with the fur that yeah. is. Like these, they scare away bears as well. That's they, why, really? Yeah, they have them staked in the ground, these dogs, and just the deep bark, and they'll just go after it. They don't care for the size. They have no fear. And this one time, two of them were, weren't staked because you don't get people really going to that area. And there's some Westerner sort of it, plodding along. With your rocks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they just came right at me. And I remember, I was, it was honestly more exhausting than a Muay Thai fight. I was just throwing these rocks. I had this backpack on. Were you <laughs> on your own at this point? Sort of, say again? Were you on your own at this point? I was on my own. Yeah. And it was getting super close. It got to a point where I couldn't even bend down to collect a rock because it would have just had me. And I remember trying to keep them in front of me, not let them get behind. And then after that, I was like, I need poles or sticks or something. And so when I was walking like early in the morning, I was banging these sticks because the bears, if you make the bears aware that you're there, they'll tend to sort of stray away, you know, run off. Um, they'll only ever really attack you if, <laughs> if it's hunting season and we were there at hunting season. So that's why I was most scared yeah. of the, the bears. I think most people's typical reaction is to think I could outrun a bear. But when you look at them, they're, they're fucking fast yeah. as well. Yeah. Like they're fast, they're yeah. powerful. Yeah. They just have no chance whatsoever. No chance. You can't outrun it. You can't outswim it. You can't outclimb it. 
it's it's just the ultimate predator. Yeah, it it just made to wipe out it species. Is. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. I think out of any any predator out there, that's the one that I fear the most. I think it's the bear, even over the lion, the tiger. Like the bear is. Yeah. Yeah, you'd just be pulling on the sport food yeah. when you. Yeah. <laughs> I think because they don't look beautiful. Like you look at some animals and some dangerous, um, different species. You know, like that, that's a beautiful species to look yeah. at. That's just the big horrible. You fucker. get some mm. nice bears. Where? You're talking, Where? You're talking about a you're, grizzly bear. You're thinking about Yogi Bear and Chester's. No, really no, don't no. Look like yeah, that in your life. no, like a sunflower bear with the. They're like this big, like a little. Yeah, no, you mean yeah they're yeah. adorable. Yeah. You're talking about a grizzly bear. They are the, the most terrifying animal. They will fuck they will, you up. They will <laughs> fuck you yeah. up. Yeah. Um, why did you end up on your own? Where's, where I know obviously you lost half your team. So it was pretty much, uh, it wasn't, so this was a Guinness World Record just to sort of walk the length. So regardless of me being solo or support, it didn't really matter. Mm. It just had to be sort of walking from the source to the sea. And it's funny because I had a, a, a beacon tracker as well, that would ping every to the satellite every five minutes. Uh, it would send off my current speed, location, coordinates, the whole lot. Wow. Every five minutes, 24-7 for 352 days. So by the time that I finished the journey, it took Guinness Book like two months to go through all of those because they had to click one beacon at a time, one really? yellow five-minute ping at a time to make sure I didn't jump on the back end of a bicycle or take the boat. And they were even like so strict. They said, if you cross a river, you can't use the flow of the river. Yeah, if you do, you have to then walk up to continue walking. So this this what was also keeping you on track. Yeah. Because did you did you waste any time by going off off course at any point? Um, yeah, I did. I sort of had to navigate around again landslides mainly. So I had I'd have like five day detours to really? do the walk. Yeah, which really put things into into perspective. You know, coming back here to civilization. I remember in Madagascar getting lost in the jungle, hacking our way through, covering what one to two miles every 14 hours and then realizing it's too impenetrable, we have to turn around. So we had to physically turn around and walk three days back on ourselves to find a different route up to the peak. So now if I do a U-turn outside in the car, I'm just like, Fuck it, yeah. it's no biggie, yeah. Yeah, the, re the reason I asked this as well, because I've, I actually hold a record in the UK for when I did the Duke of Edinburgh, so <sighs> sim similar similar task. Yeah, um, terrible bad. We were the first group mm -hmm. to split up not once, not twice, but three times. And then me and my friend who ended up with all like the, the maps and the navigation tools yeah. got brought back in the back of some random farmer's Land Rover trying to shoot at us because we'd walk through his farmland of cattle. My friend had grabbed hold of this electric fence, not realized electric, and I turned around and he's just like, no. like on the fence, my best mate, yeah. So then the farmer took us back in the Land Rover and we, we failed. We had to do, redo the whole <laughs> oh, route, but back, no. backwards. So yeah, that was, oh, that's my what? claim to fame in terms yeah. of <laughs> you go. navigating. He was actually shaking. Yeah. 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 What, yeah. what did he do when he was like... I was just turning around. I was like, what the fuck? I thought he was yeah. joking at first, you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. like loads kind of people do it's that. It's like that home alone thing of yeah. like, you get electrocuted, yeah. but he actually he got shocked. Yeah, and he was just generally... Whoa. Sh shocked. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's the worst Duke of Edinburgh story. I actually hate that. It's not even, you're not even doing Duke of Edinburgh. You're, you're sat in the back of a van. Yeah. Yeah, but it was. I'll, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll let you slide. I'll let you slide on that one. <laughs> With um, you walking this far for this amount of time, like yeah. walking for a year is absurd. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's so far. It's pretty ridiculous, really. Isn't how, it? how many miles are you covering per day to be able to cover a 4,000 mile distance? Um, it varied. I think the biggest day 
and it was in kilometers I think I was doing it in. The biggest day was over, what was it, 60? Seven, 60 to 70 kilometers. Can you even walk that in a day? Yeah, if you, yeah, if you get up early enough <laughs> just, and keep 23 going. 23 hours yeah. just. Yeah, which what is that in miles? I, I think the, the shortest day has to be in Madagascar. Madagascar was just like a whole day and we covered maybe one, two miles. Um, because the machete sort of hacking through the bamboo, you just can't cover any distance at all. So that was painful. But I think the biggest day, yeah, because I remember logging on WeChat, it was 90, it would take me to 92,000 steps and then it would just stop like on the WeChat. It wouldn't count anymore after that. It's like 92 is the limit for the day. Wow. And so I never really know the, how many steps I did, you know, in, in the day. But I do know the distance was huge distance. I remember calculating that actually. It's like that was all, like two Chester and almost the way back or something within a day. It's about 40 miles from North Wales to Chester where you guys are based, I think. And I remember that I remember judging it by that, you know, because you do your local home. Like, oh, where would that walk me to? But um, yeah, and it was a lot of pain, a lot of pain, you know, blisters, toenails popping off, um, your, your joints, you know, you're carrying a rucksack, which is what, 30, 35 kilograms. It's, um, it's, intense. It what, is intense. What are you carrying with you? Did you have to take things for the whole year? Um, or, no. or it's a bit different for this one because you're stopping yeah, in exactly. different places. Yeah, the reason I had to take the trailer through Mongolia because it was a solo un unsupported yeah. journey because many people, even the locals, obviously for thousands of years have, have walked across the country. Um, you know, the nomads actually still to this day travel different um, parts of the country and people have walked around the planet, you know. Um, but they would always take yak or camels and they would always do it in a support unit where they could carry sort of um, your food and your water. And so the Mongolia was just solo and unsupported, meaning all my provisions I'd need to carry from the most eastern point to the most western point of the country. Uh, whereas this, this journey in on the Yangtze, the true and scientific source of the Yangtze River was only discovered in 2009. Oh, that's late. That's late, right? Um, and there was a traditional source that was discovered, but still there's no evidence to suggest that anyone's walked from the traditional either. And so I was working about eight months on the traditional and then it popped up the same guy that mapped the traditional pond with NASA to rediscover the true and scientific source. So that I had to walk from, which was further and it would have to sort of change the beginning of that journey. But but we did it. Um, it was hard to get to. We lost three or four members before day one. And wow. the first attempt was a failed attempt. Um, yeah, and what, that first attempt was also another illegal attempt. I didn't <laughs> have the paperwork, but I'm like, <laughs> and they're saying, you can't go there. I'm like, what the fuck? Of course I can. It's like two miles that way. So I just rocked up and I was in this sort of national park area, which is super sensitive, so sensitive that in order to get there, they had to make me a doctor, a temporary doctor for a year and ambassador for an organization. And then I needed authorities and the government support and had to carry 16 signed and stamped laminated documents with me the whole time. Wow. And did they get checked as well on the on the way through? You get checked, yeah. And the government is even saying every few days you have to check into a hotel to make sure we're aware of where you are. And so it's it's full on. Legit, yeah. Yeah. And like we got hassled and interrogated by the police officers during the first sort of month or two because we're so close to Tibet. And they would like pick us up, put us in their uh, police van and drive us to a nearby government office, which tended to be in Tibet. 
Fuck about that's scary. Just it was scary, yeah, days. because the first time they did that, it was day number three or day number four, and I still had a whole year left. Yeah. <laughs> and they were what threatening for, to deport yeah. me. And I was like, this has taken two years to plan, and they're threatening to, to send me back to the UK because uh, they were saying I'm in Tibet. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm in Qinghai province. And of course, it's very controversial. Yeah. And I would show the map, and I'd be like, this is the line, you know, and I, I would hand them over to the government. And of course, satellite phones, you're not allowed, but I had satellite communications because it was backed up by the government. It was very controversial, very difficult. Um, and I was taken in, I think, four or five times by the, by the police. But each time they had no choice but to drop me off. And that comes to, you know, good preparation and good sort of team support and you throughout. Otherwise, I would have just been sent home on day number three. It was intense. So when they're dropping you off as well, are they dropping you back off at the point or are you having to get back to that point again? Um, they would normally drop us at the point because we, we took a horse with us for the first couple of weeks to carry some of the luggage. But this one time, they, they were in disbelief that I was in Qinghai and said I'm in Tibet. So they took us 20 miles back on ourselves to a bridge to cross the river and, and said, you walk from there. So we had to redo that whole day in those sort of elements all over again. So you had a horse with you as well? Yeah. Did you, did you take that through? <laughs> I took that for the first two to three weeks. We got like a little donkey for the film crew, but the film crew bailed. <laughs> and so we were left with this like sort of mini horse in a way. Um, so we strapped that horse up. We called him Castor Troy. Have Castor you seen Troy. Face Off? I have, yeah. Yeah, Face Off, because everyone was just disappearing left, right, and center. And it was this, it was me and this horse. And I didn't know at the time, but this horse was suffering with altitude sickness. Animals suffer with altitude How sickness. Do you even know that? How did they do <laughs> It was a local oh. that said he's got altitude sickness because it was his nose overrunning and he was constantly breathless doing like the, the, the breathing noise, the heavy sort of panther. Um, and I didn't even know that at the time. And I thought, you know what? I can't give him a stupid name like I give my bike in Vietnam, which was Elder. My Australian bicycle was fucking, what was that? Doll Gethlight, something ridiculous. <laughs> and then my chicken that I carried in Madagascar was called Gertrude. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, I need to give him a hardcore badass yeah. name. Yeah, and I was like, Castor Troy. Um, but he was with me, yeah, two, three weeks. Where, where is Castor Troy now? Uh, we sold him. Did you? Yeah, oh. to a local local village. So he's got a lot of land. He's he's uh, he was old though. Why? Sorry, just when you said chicken, why did you, why did you have a chicken in yeah. Madagascar? Oh, Gertrude. So, <laughs> in order to summit the highest mountain in Madagascar, it's tradition that you have to carry yourself a living white cockerel. Has to be white. Has to be male. Who's made this up? The, the locals, they're, they're well <gasps> I've got witch stories and everything for you. Madagascar is wild. Yeah, talk about Madagascar a little yeah. bit. It's very... Because most people only want to see it from the movie, won't they? Yeah, it's yeah. not. It, I think it features a lot in people's mind, probably because of the movie, you know, yeah. the cartoon yeah. Madagascar. The lemurs, but, the dancing. Yeah, but no one really time. actually goes there. No. And I think when people think of it, they think of resorts, but, you know, they don't think of how diverse it is. What, 90% of all plant life and wildlife found on the island is found nowhere else in the world. It's the most unique country on the planet. Um, and what you've got different tribal communities all over. You've got some jungle communities up north that have never seen a white person, never seen a Westerner. Um, you've got down south, which is really brutal, uh, a lot more impoverished. You know, you've got bandits, you've even got pirates. Um, I was warned relentlessly not to go down south because of the pirates down there uh, and because of the bandits. Uh, and as I was driving down south, we, we were driving past minibuses that were just lit up, completely set up on fire, like days before I arrived. Um, I was even held at gunpoint by a military officer who was drunk. 
and he's really? got this, yeah, and he's got this strap. It was an AK-47. He was angry. He was growling at me, man. He would look at me and be like, oh. and then anyway, his strap continued to slip because he was drunk off his shoulder. He's catching, catching the gun by the trigger with the barrel pointing at me and my guides. And we're kind of like, you know, moving. and we're, we're like, what? we what need do to we do? do something. Yeah. One of us needs to commit and tackle this guy down. Um, but that went on for about five, 10 minutes. And then two other officers came over who were a little bit more sober and we were able a to make, bit more sober. Yeah, yeah, we were, and we were able to make peace. Uh, we had to give them a bit of money and, and they left, but it's very corrupt down South. Even my, my guides that were with me, one was an alcoholic. The other just wouldn't stop crying oh, because no. he believed that I was going to get, they were going to get killed. I would get kidnapped and held ransom for money from the government. And you know, they were, it was, one of them I had to kick off the expedition because he got so sad he started turning aggressive and I was just like, you need to go, you need to leave. Madagascar was very, very intense. Um, and of course the jungles up north, you know, I had spider bites, I had leeches falling from the jungle canopy down my top. I take my shirt off at night for a good night's sleep and had to ply six to seven leeches and flick them out the tent. Um, I caught malaria, almost died of, of malaria. Again, that was for the, that was only one month into a five month journey. What does it, what does talking through what that feels like when you when that happens? The, yeah, with malaria, this this was eating away at me slowly, um, and it was weird because we were down south, and I was warned by my main sort of logistics manager that there's still the the bubonic plague in Madagascar, such an ancient sort of disease that we once had here. And we rocked up upon a community and about two or three of their relatives had died from the plague. Uh, and they said, stay inside your tent, don't come out, we'll give you food and water because that's what we needed. And so I stayed inside my tent. We had food and water. They presented us with this eel. It smelled pretty rotten, but we were hungry. We ate this eel and for the next two to three days, we like, had severe diarrhea. So we were drinking a lot of fluids. I was taking my anti-malaria pills. <clears throat> and what I think happened is they would go in one way and out the Shoot other out, yeah. or out that side, you know? And so I didn't have my full protection and I got hit with falciparum. And falciparum is the deadliest strain of malaria. You've got four different strains. The lower three wow. aren't as deadly, but they remain in your system forever. The deadliest strain, the one that I had, kills you within 24 hours. But if you're lucky enough to survive it, you can clear it from your system fully, 100% out of your system. And because of my anti-malaria pills, if it did take me within a day, I would have been dead because I was still four to five days away from the next community, away from, you know, and there was no transport. And I actually had to walk for five days with malaria and I was like rapidly declining. Um, and I made it to a community that had overland transport and they took me straight to a nearby city. And as I arrived, the doctor literally took my blood, um, came back with the result of falciparum and malaria and said, if you were three hours later, you would have slipped into a coma and potentially died. What's going like, through your head at that point when you hear that? At that point, I didn't know much about malaria and I thought once you've got it, you've got it for life and that's it. And I was devastated. Yeah. I was only one month into a five month journey. I remember just fearing everything. I was you know, feeling really negative towards myself, towards the country, towards the people. I spiraled into a dark, dark place. Um, you know, I told my family they were gutted. My mum was frantically researching everything with malaria. She worked in a doctor's surgery as well, so she was talking to her friends. Um, but this lady said, you know, if you stick to the pills for seven days, it will be fully eradicated from out of your system. And I actually felt myself bounce back pretty quick. 
And I think within, again, a week, I had lost almost 10 kilograms. So all of that training that I did beforehand, put on extra weight out the window after the first month of the five-month trip. Was this your mum, sorry, who was checking the malaria stuff for you? Yeah, I I called her. You must have put your mum through... I mean, my mum used to worry about me cutting my knees when I was going outside. So the the, the absolute mental anxiety she must have gone through. Yeah, honestly, there's been so much... So many sort of calls back at home. I think at the beginning, I didn't really tell them much about it. You know, the cycle in Vietnam, for example, I remember just dropping them an email because I wasn't on social media. I yeah. didn't do that sort of stuff. I just little like, she knows the better. Yeah, I had like a little, a little camera dropped on the email at the bottom, you know, PS, I'm currently cycling across, uh, across Vietnam. But yeah, no, she's had it relentlessly, sort of these messages. I remember she'll never let me live out the, the Muay Thai, the first sort of stadium Muay Thai fight that I had was on her birthday. <laughs> and it was like the first legit where, in, where Thailand, no, in Thailand. Okay. In Thailand, yeah. Yeah, where even the padding for the gloves, they're pushed to Nothing. one side, so it's pretty much bare knuckle, you know. It's um and that was on her birthday, so yeah. yeah that was a great birthday yeah. present. Yeah. But they, you know, they love it, they're super supportive. My dad yeah. is, is fully part of the business. Great. He acts as, as my representative, if, if you like, co-director awesome. of the company. Yeah, so it's uh it's, it's great how it how it's worked out. Do you know, like when you're getting some of these warning signs by management or advisories from when you're you're going through some of these trips, mm. <coughs> what makes you persevere even in the face of that? Is it the evidence that you've already built up from being on the previous ones? Is it like just this delusional optimism? What 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 opens that point where you've kind of faced these fears mm. or these threats yeah. that haven't actually come to anything yeah now you're hit with malaria the the, re- the first real kind of risk mm. that feels real yeah no it's um it's very hard because before i set out on a journey i am all about sort of visualization the law of attraction being positive yeah. you know seeing the outcome i think a lot of people when they visualize they visualize the positives but what i do i completely spin it and i actually visualize the worst case scenario you know, crazy. I try to put my mind through it almost so that I've felt it so that when it hits, you know, you, you have fight and flight. And when it hits, I don't I don't slip into flight because it's almost, you know, like, well, I've been here before. Even when I'm training, I remember going back home. I couldn't afford no gym membership. This was for Mongolia now. I had my uncle drop me off a tractor tire and a sledgehammer. And I was just training for three hours from like five, six o'clock in the morning in my back garden in the rain and the snow. It didn't matter. And as I'm training, I'm telling myself in Mongolia, I'm going to be stalked. I'm going to be attacked by a pack of wolves. I'm going to face the biggest and baddest snow blizzards, the biggest and baddest sandstorms. Not because I wanted to, but because I pictured it and visualized it so much. And this was my way of thinking. If I visualized the worst case and worst case was then going to happen when I'm out on the field, at least it doesn't come by shock or by surprise in which I go into flight and I panic and I make stupid mistakes. It's one of those where I stay cool, calm, concentrated. I've been here before in my garage, in the back garden train, and I visualized it. Now I I have to crack on. So I think with whatever journey you're taking, it's important to look at obviously the highlights and visualize this is where we could be. But I think it is just as important, if not more so, to focus on the worst case scenarios and the and the hiccups and hurdles that you're gonna face along the way. And if you've got them down to a T, if they don't happen, then the journey's even better because yeah. it's like, wow, I've not got um, malaria or I've not suffered from dehydrate. If that's a breeze and I expected to catch malaria, 
I'm just like, yeah, no, it was. And I think that's why I come back from these expeditions and people are like, but you're still sort of, your energy, you're still smiley and upbeat and positive. But when I'm out on an expedition, it's a whole different ball game. That's when I hit the zone and I'm very serious, mm -hmm. more professional. But when I come back home, I kind of take the positives and not the negatives. And if I had to change anything, I, I probably wouldn't, you know, on the mm. previous expeditions that I've done, because I do believe I needed to, to learn from that, as you mentioned, with the experience. And when I was 19 and I set off and I was doing all of these reckless adventures, I think a lot of it was sort of foolhardiness, stubbornness, maybe a bit of stupidity. But I needed to go yeah, there to be able to, you know, it's kind of like when we look back at when we were younger and, you know, even, even Facebook, you look at some of the states yeah. that you used to put, you can't <laughs> help but cringe. And like, yeah, but I can see where I was heading. Um, it's kind of like that sort of message. So there's an element of gratitude there then from, from those experiences that you don't run into and you don't get as well. And that kind of analogy that we referred to before, the rats and avoiding that pain because you know what that pain can cause yeah. is... Yeah, it's is, is pushing you forward as well. The one thing you mentioned there that I'm super interested in is your experience with Muay Thai because I got into it last last year. Okay, um, nice. From from being just like a runner and bodybuilding, yeah. doing a martial art has definitely given my life something different that I've not mm. experienced before. Especially just going back to being a beginner. Yeah experiencing challenges, being hardship, humbled. being humble. Right, the first yeah. couple of months I broke my, my rib from a flying <sighs> knee. So I had a bit of time off from that. But yeah. um, just even the way that, especially the coach that I was working with, a guy called Tam who's from Thailand, he's awesome. Mm. Just even how much he gives to the pupils in the class, like yeah. the level of, passion that he provides as a, as a coach which is is very different from like what i think you get from coaches in the uk and stuff mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested just to kind of hear some of your experience with muay thai and what's what's probably taught you as well going into some of those experiences and those expeditions yeah i look uh, yeah that's a great question as well actually because i do kind of link muay thai to the expeditions mm. because you know i remember training for mongolia and it was in thailand before i came back home to pursue it and it was almost that dogged mentality that they had they're very hardcore and work on but they're very disciplined as well. And they're yeah. very good to train with. There's almost no ego. They won't just like try to punch you harder because you've caught them hard on accident. You know, they're very level headed. They'll fuck you up if they yeah. want to, but they're sort of helping you learn. Um, and I just kind of liked the sense of brotherhood in Kotao. Kotao yeah. was where I was learning. We would go for mountain runs in the jungle. Then we'd come back. Yeah, it was it was awesome, man. And the, even the little tips, you know, beating your shins, yeah. sort of killing the nerve endings. Uh, it was very hardcore training, and the kit that they were using was very basic as well. So it, it gets you a little bit more hardcore, yeah. a bit more rough and ready. You know, when the sun's beaming down and it's 35 plus degrees Celsius, if they, if they want to take the piss, they'll just throw you out from under the shelter and have you training on the mat in direct sunlight, you know? Oh, that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's it's full on, but I appreciate it because when they did that, I was like, well, the Gobi Desert's going to be hotter yeah. <laughs> and there's going to be no, <laughs> yeah. no escape then. Uh, and I do think that that really helped to prepare me, Not again, not only physically, but, but mentally. I always say it's kind of like a... I've always believed it's a 70-30 split, um... But kind of now, when I look back at some of these challenges, I, it's just a, you need 100 physical and 100 mindset. Um, because when I look back at the worst case scenario where I've been at my, like the Gobi Desert, for example, there was a time where I started feeling sorry for myself. 
I'd started feel, thinking about loved ones. I believed I was slowly dying and I might not make it out of the desert. But then I had to sort of convince myself that death wasn't an option and focus on just the one option that I had, which was sort of to survive. And so once I cleared that, it took so much energy mentally to actually stay on track, to actually get out from under the trailer, to actually walk 100 meters and keep doing that for four days with very little water, that I was like, no, all that energy needed, it needed to be 100% mindset. But then when I look at the physical and how my organs were failing me, I was kind of like, and the training was vitally important as well. It needed to be 100% physical also. It's, um, but it is interesting because I only really started thinking about that a few months back the end of last year on the Great War, I was like, yeah, there's no split. You need to give it your all. Otherwise, you're dead because it's not a game of winning or losing. You know, it's, a, it's, it's living or dying. And I was like, yeah, you've got to be ready. You've got to be prepared. And I think that is what used to scare me the most is what if I'm not ready? What if I don't prepare mentally? Or what if I've missed something physically? But again, it's experience, isn't it? Like, you know, you guys, you train all the time. You built yourself to that level and you had to go through the grind. You had to really push yourself to get where you're at now. You faced the downs. You've been in dark patches, but you just keep rising above and, and tackling it over and over again until you get where you want to get to. Is the biggest way that you deal with fear, mm. like the visualization beforehand so you say you visualize these things and really negative things that can happen mm. you do a lot of things that are terrifying like being so close to death the wolves the animals the climate the weather yeah. the food shortage like things that are scary and fearful how how do you deal with that level of fear i don't think as humans as ben said i don't know if you've read the book sapiens before yeah love it Re really yeah, Love really it. interesting, great. You remind me a lot of it, the whole um, <laughs> nice. the whole book and, and, and what you've done. But this day and age, people don't have that level of fear. So how yeah. have you built up, I guess, like the courage in a way to be able to just be like, okay, fine, mm. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, you know what? I think it's just facing adversity. Mm. And I do think, you know, I'm only 32 myself, but I do think most people now just don't need to physically push themselves or don't really face much adversity and I I think it's so crucial honestly if if I had it my way I would have all schools say at the age of 16 go through some form of initiation test where you send these 16 year olds out into the jungle out into the desert they're not going to die they're fully supported but just to give them that fucking shake that wake-up call that realization of look how fucking easy you have it mm -hmm. back in the west you know back in the city um and so I just think that people are missing their, their time to shine. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can shine unless you are pushed through extreme adversities. And that doesn't necessarily mean the extreme outdoors. Extreme adversities comes in many different forms. But I think it's only when they're down and out and when they physically push themselves or mentally push themselves down and out, they can really see what they're made of. And then once they see that, they get a taste of it. And they become better because they start developing and then they become more adverse. They can take on that challenge because they've done this. They can pursue that because they've already achieved this. And I think that's what people are missing um, is that adversity. They need to be tested. They yeah. need to be yeah. dragged and sort of thrown around, ragdolled around a little bit to realize and to be humbled that, you know, I've got a long way to go, but I'm going to get there. It's funny you should say that. We had a guy called Sam Logan who literally said the same thing about in terms of when 
kids in school get to a certain age, whenever it may be, that yeah. they, they kind of have this kind of real test. So mm. Sam Logan's a Royal Marine who we had on. Right. Um, because he'd been a lot of, through a lot of stuff in, yeah, in war in Afghanistan Jeez. and seen a lot of things. I think what you're referring to, we've been really speaking a lot about at the moment in terms of like leaning into pain mm-hmm. and discomfort and, and getting a, a feel for what it, it's like to be in that arena and yeah. how you feel afterwards. I know that Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this in terms yeah. of being getting your shit in order, getting your house together, your room tidy, standing yeah. up stro- strong in order to tackle the world. Because unless you go through those kind of things, what happens when you lose your job, loved ones die, you have to experience these real life circumstances that you aren't prepared for mentally because you've never been through anything before. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people at the moment who are like really struggling in life, really mm. are. But a lot of them are waiting for this light bulb moment of motivation to to really kick off. For those people who are overwhelmed and for those people who are looking to push on into something that feels way further away than, than where they are at the moment, how, how, do you, how do you get yourself ready to, to go at something that feels like such a, an extreme or so far away from the start point that you're at? Um, discipline. As cliche as, again, that sounds, I'll give you a story of where I first learned this. I didn't hear this. I learned this for myself the hard way. I was in the, the Malagasy jungle, sort of hacking through um, with the machete. There was leeches, there were spiders. I was hungry, I was thirsty. I was stuck and lost in the jungle. And I found myself only, only covering a certain amount of distance before just collapsing. And you can see there's photos like physically bleeding and all sorts. Um, can we, have you got this photo? Can we, yeah, can we find Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the photo. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh, yeah, and of the spider bites, I'll send you that photo too. It's pretty grim. And I remember hating the jungle. I fucking hated being there. I couldn't stand it. I wanted out. My shoes had broke. Everything was just ruined. And I was just stuck in the middle of this jungle. Um, and I remember just want, not wanting to quit, but I remember giving no fucks about it, just wanting to be out of, the, out of this sort of sweaty jungle. And then I realized that, well, one, there's, there's no other option. I, I can't get out. I have to continue. And I also realized that no matter what you're doing, you can't always be motivated, but you can be disciplined. And it drew back on previous experience from the Gobi Desert to help me in the jungle, breaking it down to 100 meters. In the jungle, I broke it down to 50 meter sections. And whilst I hated it and didn't want to be there, I was doing it. You know, I was getting it done. I was making progress. I was escaping the jungle. And so I think a lot of people now, they get overwhelmed with where they've got to be and how they're going to get there. But just sort of start by disciplining yourself to set out sort of routine, to write the next day's list of what you need to get done in order to get closer to the, to the next step. And that's what I do. That's what I did in, in the COVID times. That's what I do on all of my adventures. Um, people just find excuses or procrastinate. And I just don't have excuses for people like that you know it's just get it done get up get what needs to or uh, get what needs to be done done now whilst you can you know i do have to ask as well this <laughs> this is a little bit off topic yeah but we <laughs> you know exactly what i'm gonna say don't you it's gonna be a, a, we recently we recently went to mm. florida and i have like oh, a mass <laughs> <laughs> i have a mass interest in yeah. like sharks and okay. crocodiles and alligators because I'm like, they're just 
like crazy, incredibly yeah, scary, but savage. fascinating yeah. and savage. Yeah. And we're in Florida and every time we go past the lake, I'm like, where are the alligators? And Ben took me to Gatorland and it was like the best day of my life. But <laughs> point aside of that, um, I've heard that Madagascar has some very, as you said, like the spiders, the leeches and things like yeah. that, but some really big, terrifying crocodiles. Yeah. Um, and I just had to ask about it because if you come across a crocodile, I'm pretty sure most people die from what I've read <laughs> up on and from what I've heard. D did you ever see one or come into any sort of close encounter yeah crocs were a big issue because a lot of the rivers are sort of infested with yeah. with crocodiles i've got a couple of stories about that as well um but these communities that we would come across all had stories of who went missing uh, due to a crocodile uh, and there were sometimes where we were in such a remote area that there were no people to talk to because normally there's three ways to cross crocodile infested rivers you either cross where the the locals cross because they cross it every day they know the, the territory of the crocs you either cross where there's white water or rapids because the crocs don't go there, or you cross by building a um, shell, uh, a raft using natural resources. And there were a few crossings that we had to do because there was no sort of white water. There were no locals. So we would spend three to four hours constructing a bamboo raft, if you like, strapped together with bamboo leaves. And it's murky water, so you don't know what lies beneath. You're just kind of hoping that, you know, nothing pops up. And, and once we did it, yeah, that was it. We sent the luggage across to the other side. We came back, we attached it with sort of string um, and we crossed and we, and, and we got across to the other side. But the locals at times, I don't know what you guys think about this, but the locals at times, I, I mentioned that they were very superstitious and they believe in a lot of sort of things that they think is yeah. legit. We would ask them about the rivers and crossing them and they would reply it was translated to me that they have a deal with the local crocodiles here, whereby the crocs will leave us alone if we leave them alone. And so they'll allow us to cross their river if we allow them to, to stay there. I'm like, okay, so you're saying I can cross this river based on some sort of formal handshake or contract <laughs> well, sign. fucking crocodile. That's like some sort of a story yeah. tale. Yeah, honestly, <gasps> it's like that. It's, it's very sort of... Um, very superstitious, like you can- Very higher power. Kind of yeah, thing. like Gertrude, the chicken story that I was telling yeah. you about, we had to take a, a white cockerel again, and he was with me for two and a half weeks because we had two other peaks to climb before we made to the summit. And the reason you've got to keep, um, carry a white chicken is because it protects you from the bad spirits and witches of the rainforest. So Gertrude became fully domesticated. He was in my backpack, sticking his head up. I had to feed him, I had to give him water, I had to protect him, he would sleep on top of my tent. Uh, it was just like having a, a, a pet dog with me. It sounds like the fucking Moana story. Where you <laughs> yeah, we just got chicken the little chicken. Yeah, yeah. yeah the right. Pig. And then on the peak, you let the chicken go. And you can't, Gertrude couldn't come back down with us because if we rock up to a community, we would effectively be bringing the bad spirits and, oh, wow. and witches into a into that uh, community. I wonder if Gertrude survived yeah. at the top of the... Well, yeah. You, you know, really would hope so. <laughs> you really King hope so. Gertrude, <laughs> yeah, still there at the peak. Yeah, <laughs> very superstitious. Did yeah. you run in, into any of these communities um, or different villages that were hostile towards you when you when you came to them in, in any of the places that you visited? And did, did any kind of... Any of those really come to mind? The ones in Madagascar, which was fascinating, when I, when I talk about this story... Originally, I thought this would be more Papua New Guinea and the Amazon. Mm -hmm. But I came across communities that would completely abandon and flee the whole village once they saw a white person. 
Really? So I would rock up looking for water, food, maybe sort of directions. Um, and I could see them. They're all in there. You know, I could see them in the distance on the next hill. Perfect. There's people. But they had obviously spotted us and they would literally run and hide in the bush. We saw people walking towards us at times. And as we would walk around the corner, they would turn around because they spotted us. And they would throw themselves off pretty steep cliffs just to escape us. And they'd be rolling down, falling. And then at the bottom when they landed, they would just run off which was very bizarre. And I was warned by my logistics manager that I will probably face that. But seeing it in person, people just running because they think that you're going to fuck them up. And that was from when the French colonized Madagascar. They ah, were brutal, okay. like over 60 years ago. They were pretty brutal. So all of the stories that have been passed on from the parents or grandparents. So just the evolution that they've been through. Yeah, made them but they, they're so disconnected. They don't really even like um, the locals who live further down off the mountains, who live on the coasts. So they, they have no communication. So maybe they still believe we're living in that day and age. They're not connected to the internet. Yeah. They're completely cut off because it's a big island. Mm. It's what is it? It's like two and a half, three times the size of the UK. I suppose oh, it's wow. what, like, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I suppose it's what you're just used to seeing as well for years and years and years and years. And it? Faces, yeah. colors. Yeah. There's a, there's a study done to something around how when you're around, like we live in the UK we see a lot of white faces day to day so we are in our brain we'll be able to identify white people a lot easier than we will be able to identify Chinese people because mm -hmm. we're used to seeing those white features over and over and over and we see thousands of white faces yeah whereas it's different if you were to live in China where people may look more similar and that's not racism it's just studies that have been done on Got you. The, the people that you've been surrounded by so I suppose when they are just surrounded by the same face, the same people, the same color people, and hearing these stories of evolution over yeah, time, yeah. it'd be probably incredibly scary just yeah. to even come across that. You would run, wouldn't you? Yeah. You, you would yeah. run, you would be like, fuck this, I'm out. I had a similar experience in the on the Yangtze where I was just in such a remote area, and this is amazing for China, but I was completely lost, hadn't seen any people for days, and I was trying to navigate over this mountain range to join the Yangtze again, and I saw these two old ladies in the distance, and I approached them, and at this point, you know, I've got, I'm all blue, I've got this beard growing out, <laughs> red eyes, longish hair, you know, and I'm walking towards them, and you could just see them start walking fast away from me. I thought nothing of it, so I just upped my pace, they upped their pace, I upped mine again, and then eventually, they climbed up an embankment, picked up two rocks, and like just held them, threatened to throw them at me, uh, and I got my phone out. I was like, well, I started like filming this as I was trying to communicate. I sent that video to like loads of different people who lived in China and to my team in Beijing. They didn't, they didn't recognize the dialect. They didn't understand one word of what these ladies were saying because the dialects are always changing. There's like over a hundred different, they said it may as well have been a whole separate language. They do not recognize one really? word. I was like, wow. 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 So that could have been the old lady's first time yeah. also seeing her. Yeah. A Westerner. Kyle's got a question. Yeah, I've got about a hundred questions. I can't <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, seriously. Bring so, them my way. <laughs> okay, so kind of my first one. Um, yeah, I'm only going to ask two. But um, what's it like? So obviously, you've gone from like the highest of highs to the like lowest of lows. But in yeah. terms of like what you had with you, you traveled the Gobi Desert, and everything you had, you had to take with you in a backpack or on on the cart yeah what's it like coming back into the world now where you can uber eat something to your front door or you can amazon next day delivery anything what's yeah. it like going from like i have nothing for a year to back to reality like the next day yeah man yeah it's a good question you know it feels like such a healthy balance mm. everything's so convenient you know like you can pop the toast down and it's gonna ping up 
Whereas in the desert, you have to hold that bread over the fire. <laughs> you, know, you can boil the water just by flicking the kettle on, take a shower. It's going to be hot by the time you get back. But everything needs to be monitored when you're camping, when you're out there. Being dry, having shelter, all of this stuff is majorly taken for granted, of course. And then when I come back, it's that almost, it's almost too good. You know, I remember when I started, when I got back from, um, especially Mongolia, that's when I was doing a lot of the camping. When I got back from there and I was in a house, it took me a while to adjust because I was used to the wind. I was used to air flowing. I was used to like these noises. And all of a sudden I was just sort of in a house in Wales where it's super quiet anyway. And there was like none of that. It was almost too quiet and I needed some sort of noise. And it took me a couple of weeks, I think, to get used to even sleeping back here in, in civilization because I was just so used to being out in the wild. It's funny how you how you adjust, but the convenience of it, you kind of, you forget how quick and easy everything is here when you're out there, but then you come back and it's like, ah, oh. but then you still find things to complain about. Like I can't stand queuing and I'm like, ah, oh. and then I'm like, well, it could be worse. I could be in the jungle, you know? And so it's, it, it, when I'm get like that, it's like, right, it's time for me to go on another adventure again, you know, to rebalance that. That's so interesting. Do you, on that as well, like what the, the point that Carl's brought up, did it, does it feel quite natural to make that transition into the expedition that you did just because I'm reading the book at the moment called The Eight That Understood Everything. I don't know if you've read it, but if you've read Sapiens, it's super interesting. Okay, yeah. Um, it's about like from a evolutionary psychology perspective and balance and evolution versus culture. And one of the things it's talked about is obviously how evolution has been ingrained in us for years and years, thousands of years. And this yeah. is some of the circumstances that our earlier ancestors would have had to, to deal with. So it's, we take a lot of those experiences and it's passing the genes and things yeah. of all but we'll have a lot of that experience locked in there yeah, somewhere so for sure how i suppose my question is how easy do you think it feel it was to just kind of move to transition yeah into to the, transition to that yeah moment? it's funny because i i call i call that sort of breaking into your wild side yeah it's kind of like that it's like kind of like there's a little wild side locked inside of yeah. everyone right that sounds great yeah and it's it's i realized on the yanks it's about two weeks to break into the wild side. So that's where you're getting niggled with things being wet, with things being dirty, mm. sleeping in an uncomfortable environment. You kind of like get frustrated by that. And then eventually that starts to go and then you start giving less of a fuck about it. Yeah, it, You almost, it's that similar phrase, get comfortable with the uncomfortable yes. uh, to such a point that you don't even notice it. And I think that is, is two weeks. And after two weeks, you're then a little bit more rough, a little bit more tough and hard into the environment that you're in. Um, and then it, the stuff that you thought would bother you doesn't bother you as, as much. Like I always thought that I would want to be staying with locals because locals, there's safety. But if anything, I kind of then got so used to just not being around people that if there was the opportunity, I would purposely walk past where they were sleeping and they're good so that I could have my own space in the middle of nowhere in my tent. Um, and that's when you become, you know, really, really wild where mm -hmm. you kind of like, you just, you know, you don't care. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's been that way for a long time before we were here and the things yeah. that are around us now, like you mentioned color, Uber Eats, the convenience of, yeah. of taxis. And it's all so recent, obviously. Things, right? yeah. that, well, that's why there's this thing known as like a cultural mismatch because we've been ingrained in this evolution for so yeah. long versus the short period of time that we've, being around these fast paced yeah. uh, click of a button environment where we yeah. can get things so yeah. so easily. It's I think it's taken a lot of sort of 
um, human instincts away, right? Yeah. And I think that's probably why there's more depression now than, than ever before. This is one of the arguments. You know, people almost don't have much purpose, right? You've got to create and find a purpose. Otherwise, now you're going to really struggle because you don't, it used to be your purpose would just like go, go hunting, right? Find shelter. Or you work uh, more uh, as a tight knit community with your family. Whereas it's now you've got more freedom, there's less purpose unless you're working on something. And those who work on something build up a rhythm and they're the ones that are usually super successful because they started doing that uh, early. But those who sort of have no purpose and then struggle to find a purpose, they're not going to have anything outside because it's super easy anyway. You go to Tesco, you don't need to go hunting. Mm -hmm. You go rent an apartment or a hotel or stay at your family's. You don't need to build a shelter so things are taken super quick and we, you know, things happen fast as well. Like what back then it would take days to, yeah. to build a shelter. Now you just like, it's an online yeah. booking on booking.com and that's sorted, done fast. Okay, what do I, what does my mind need yeah. to focus on now? Because we're very, we need to create problems almost for ourselves, right? We're sort of um, always looking for the next big problem, even when we've got it right. And it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult, I guess, in this day and age because everything's just so easy, right? Yeah, you're getting that immediate gratification, aren't you? Yeah. From... yeah. It's, it's also as well only going to get worse in a way. Like, I feel like we're just kind of at the start of it. Mm -hmm. And then that's just me thinking, how would, how would you even get people to then go and find that level of, like a different level of hard and, yeah. you know, whether it is getting outside or doing something, we're only going to get worse. And yeah people will then take things for granted, I think. And that's probably the biggest, not a worry. I think it's scary. A, but it, it is scary. It's, yeah. it's a concern that we're not going to go out and like fight for things or like yeah. be fearful or try something new, do something that's terrifying yeah. because it's so much better just to live a comfortable life for mm -hmm. most people that they wouldn't choose to do that. Obviously what you've done is more of an extreme thing. I'm not using that as just an no, example, yeah, but even just, just doing, <coughs> doing something, it's, it is, yeah. yeah, it's scary. It's scary where it's heading, isn't it? For sure. Yeah. Like sort of what's, what's coming next. And I think, you know, be careful what I say, but we are definitely heading in the direction of, of China, you know? Yeah. Where sort of all our rights, freedoms taken, everything's like done super easy where you've got that. So you should be happy. They'll make it super easy for yeah. you to obtain things. And I think, if you take away that hard work and that grind and that true grit for working for things because things are becoming so easy nowadays, it's going to, um, and I think it's also reserved, I, uh, uh, sorry, reversed. I think it's also potentially one of the hardest times to live too, mm -hmm. because what I notice when I'm out in the wild is these nomads, especially like in Mongolia, for example, they've got nothing yet. They don't want anything from me and they're giving me everything and they're, and they're happy and they've got their family and that's all that matters. And it's just interesting being in such a hardcore environment where these get people get battered by zoods, which are like extreme sort of um, cold storms that rush through the valleys. And they're just kind of like out on their horses, you know, with their sheep, with their yak, families coming over from the Gur 50 miles, you know, this way. And they'll come across nothing in between that. They just feel like whilst they are poor and don't have much money, they're also very rich because they've prioritized the right things. And then I come back here and I see a lot of lost people. I see a lot of people sort of working for, you know, and, and struggling for nothing and or have no purpose. And I just think these people are, are, are putting so much on their plate and prioritizing so much and overworking that they're sort of killing themselves slowly. You take them away from that and just throw them out into the wilderness where they can just reconnect with 
nature and their mindset will be so much better. Um, so I do think it's just sort of pushing yourself, having sort of a change in environment, breaking your goals down, tomorrow's another day, but also connect with nature, get back out there. I think mindset is a big issue now, isn't it? <clears throat> with lots of people. And I think it was Tyson Fury that said it himself, yeah. wasn't it? That like he slipped into major depression once he felt, once he felt like he had accomplished everything. And then what got him out of depression was the goals and, and the training mm -hmm. and actually pushing himself again. It's like he didn't need to train. He already achieved like the, the, the heavyweight belt, yeah. you know, but he, he needed to, to save his life. And I think that's what people need, something like that, a that's, goal, a purpose. That's like that gold medal syndrome, isn't it? I think with people like Tyson Fury and that, mm. getting stuck on the hedonic treadmill, or just what's, what more can I achieve yeah. when the, the actual happiness comes from the process of yes. the training, the hardship, exactly. going through the things rather than the, the end position. And even like yeah. you mentioned then, I think being back in the UK, people working long days, long hours, what for? Most people are working because they want happiness, more yeah. freedom. And a lot of people could have that without that big chunk in the middle being the work and stress. Yeah. It's almost like looping over the, the, the middle bit to get to the end bit. Yeah. And it's, I suppose, I've been thinking about it a lot over the past year. I think we've spoken on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. It seems to be this, even in like a life cycle, when we're kids, we spend a lot of time outdoors, outside playing, playing, which is, is our means of, finding failing things yeah and then we have this chunk in the middle where we do a hell of a lot of work and then we retire we want to do nothing but be outside walking and these seem to be the two positions where arguably we're the happiest in, in life mm. and the, i think there's definitely something to be said about those two parts of the life cycle yeah right yeah because it's not that hard working process in the middle which again you know you've got to i think if you if you want something now you've got to try to make it happen now right because I think a lot of people put things off now and say, I oh, will do that later. Yeah. And you're, everything changes. Like the stuff, even now looking back, the stuff that I did back then, I wouldn't do now. I don't think I would get a 10 pound bicycle and just cycle through Cambodia and Vietnam with no pump, with no puncture repair kit, cycle 39 hours straight, no sleep, 45 hours with no sleep, you know? I just wouldn't do that because now I know sleep is important. Now I know I don't want to be drinking 10 cans of Red Bull or whatnot per, per day. Now I know that I need to look after the body. And I think a lot of people think they're going to do it 10 years from now or 20 years from now. No, everything's going to change. You're going to be a whole different person. And so I think if you want to do something, you know, if, if you can do it now, obviously it's a lot easier said than done, um, then do it because everything's going to change 10 years from now or 20 years. You might be in a whole different headspace. Hello, me again. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Cal, has his, Cal has his other question. Yeah. So I was wondering, so the first time that I heard about you, and yeah. I'm sure a lot of people heard about you, was from the Joe Rogan experience. Yes. Can you go into a bit of detail as to what it's like for someone, for their career, for everything, post Joe Rogan? What's it yeah. like to appear on the biggest podcast on the planet? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. It's... Um, it was insane, really, how it, how it happened, because I, I was sort of visualizing that on the Yangtze, and I said to my friend, like, oh, when, I, when I get back home, I want to do the Joe Rogan podcast. And I don't think I've mentioned this before, but I think a lot of people assumed that my PR had contacted his team, and that's how it happened. I literally just drafted up an email. I copied and pasted it from my mums, from my sisters, from my brother-in-laws, and I bombarded an email that came for the podcast. It must've been his agent or someone yeah. similar. 
and I just sent the emails myself. And people kind of think, no way, did it. but yeah, I set it all up. I, I reached out, sent maybe 10, 14 different emails. Um, and then he got back about two weeks later, uh, one of his guys and said, you know, I've just taken Joe through through your shit, you know, through your, your email. He loves it. He's done his research. He wants you on the show. Are you free two weeks from now? I was just like, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes is that answer. <laughs> so I booked my flight. I rocked up. He was super cool. It was kind of like this big man cave. He had everything inside. His big sort of intimidating bouncers opened the door, but really? they were big teddy bears. They were super friendly. Ash, come in. And so they showed me around. Um, he was currently on a podcast with Joey Diaz who I wasn't so familiar with at yeah, the time. Yeah, Joey Diaz, cool. Yeah, but my friend flew out with me and he was a huge fan of like Joe Rogan, yeah. Joey Diaz, all of that. And Joey comes out and obviously Joe had told Joey that he's interviewing me. And he was like, hey, Ash, and I shook his hand. And my friend afterwards was like, that was the world's most wasted handshake. Do you even know who that was? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, it was, it was oh. great. After that, um, things just really blew up. Lots of different presentations. I was contacted by... Uh, Dwayne Johnson's agent, who was really? then my agent for about five, six months. That's cool. Yeah, for WME, Brad Slater. They flew me back out to LA. We then met up with the president of Nat Geo and the vice president of Discovery and we're pitching new show ideas. And it was uh, it was all very exciting and it was like phew, skyrocketed uh, and then COVID happened. <laughs> and then wow, I had to pick yeah. things back yeah. up again. Luckily, I managed to pick it back up and you know, I've just returned from filming a, a six-time one-hour TV show, uh, which will air internationally. But um, there was a good two-year gap in between that, where just obviously, as you know, COVID just shut everything down. But uh, yeah, yeah that's uh, it, it, it helps. So, so, all right, you can expect big things after being on there. <laughs> the not-so-fit couple as well get their TV, yeah. the TV uh, things. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm excited <laughs> to be here. Is, yeah, I tell you what, this that is, is uh, awesome. I think this this and High Performance are the biggest podcasts I've been on in the UK for sure. I'll take that. Yeah, yeah, because I'm trying to get more sort of UK podcasts, you know, because it was big in, in the US, as you said, with yeah. the um, Joe Rogan. But it's like, right, yeah, come I on, UK we, podcasts. We were speaking about before. What was the percentage, Carl, of, of podcasts? Podcasts. So there's 2 million podcasts in the world, and 99% of them don't make it past episode three. Oh, wow. And then 99% of that 1% yeah. don't make it past episode 20. So of the remaining 0.1%, there is only 17,000 podcasts in the world. Whoa. That make it past episode 20. Yeah. And so we're on episode one. That's insane, isn't it? But it actually, it's, yeah, it rings true, doesn't it? You see yeah. so many people sort of firing up, starting podcasts, but it's very few that actually yeah. do make feel, it. It's a I, hard industry. I feel I like you see a lot of podcasts and you think they don't, they don't really need the podcast. <laughs> They've not got enough to say. Yeah, sometimes. got you. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think we've been doing it for three or four years and it's just amazing to have conversations with people like yourself. It's, Dig right. a little bit deeper into the mindset and the psychology that lies behind yeah. these kind of amazing feats, mm. which is what really interests me. Yeah, I love it. And I try to make it relate. Like they've been really good questions by you guys. I try to make it relatable because I know that a lot of people, they're not going to, you know, pick up a machete and hack through <laughs> the jungle or, or, or rock up in a trailer and cross the desert. I try to do it in a, in a way that the stories resonate and can be relatable for people in their sort of everyday lives. Yeah rather than one man and his mission in the jungle. I don't want it to be about that. It needs to be about the, the bigger picture. So that's a bit, a bit like a, a Goggins style of, of messaging is, 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 is being yeah. that kind of hero figure to, yeah. to go through a bit of hardship, go through a bit of pain, showing what mm -hmm. us as human beings can, can really do if we put our mm. mind to it. Yeah, yeah. Because as I said, we've all, we've all got it. We've all got that wild side again mm. implanted in us. It's just a lot of 
very few people sort of wipe off that layer of dust and dis- discover it. Um, but it's so easy to discover it, right? Mm-hmm. So easy to just get out there. I was going to ask you what's next, but you're lying on your deathbed. Three things that Ash Dykes wants to have achieved by the time you reach that position that you're going to tell, that you'd like to tell people about that you've, you've done. Ooh, I've never had that before. Three things that I would like to have. Um, I think there's probably two sides to that. There's the more sort of selfish side to it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the more sort of reasonable, but also true side to yeah. it. And I think that side would obviously be, you know, great family um, who knew me sort of as, as a great man, uh, achieved everything that I did, but remained positive and happy sort of throughout the journey and sort of lived in the moment. That's quite hard for me to do as well because I'm always sort of planning ahead and looking at the next thing, but I'm always sort of reminding myself, be present, you know, and, and be aware of your energy when people are around you, mm-hmm. be there. But then there's the, also the other side that that does think of records that does think of legacy and i do want to sort of leave my mark and and be known when i'm gone you know so i would say have i picked six there and so I, i'd say yeah that but um but i i think the main thing going back to when I was 19, because that's when I was probably at my most purest because there wasn't social media, there wasn't business, I wasn't thinking about money, I didn't care for money, it was all about sort of lifestyle, would be just to live this one life that I've got because it, and I knew from a young age that it kind of felt like it was going fast. Just enjoy it, get out there, do lots of things that you enjoy doing. You know, what's the worst case? You know, the worst case, obviously you die, but take that out of the picture, what's the worst case? Well, I'm never going to be homeless because I'm in a fortunate position where I've got friends and family that I could always yeah. rely on. You know, I'm at that, and, and like probably about 80% of us here right now living in London, probably at that stage where we can take risks because worst case probably isn't homeless for many of us. So take those risks, you know, live the life, go out there, find what you're capable of in your specific industry, whatever you're passionate about um, is probably what my 19-year-old self would say. Love it. And who's, I always wonder this for people like you, who's, who's your role model or who do you, who do you look up to, who inspires you? Uh, yeah, I w- many people, you know, many. I wouldn't say there's one specific role model. I think given what I do, a lot of people think it's going to be some form of explorer, but I'm not actually well educated with, as bad as that sounds, with previous explorers because mm-hmm. it just happened so organically, you know, it was to save money to get off yeah. the beaten track. Um, but I would say, you know, I'm heavily into martial arts, boxing, UFC, but I'm also very into business. So the entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. side. So I would probably say it's anyone going against the odds, doing what is deemed to be impossible and sort of achieving it anyway, whether that is in more of the corporate world Mm -hmm. or more in the athletics world, like the Usain Bolt, the McGregor, the Mayweather, all of that, you know? And so I always take a bit of inspiration from, all of these from many different industries because I think you, we can learn from everyone, can't we? Yeah, 100%. I think I really resonate with that, especially because the crazy world that we live in now, mm. there's some people who deem even the the term hard work to be toxic. 
Right. We live so, and it's such a soft generation, so that it's nice to see people who are going out doing, just doing the thing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just, yeah. just taking action. Just taking the gamble and not being put off by the fact that they're probably going to fail or might not make it. And then when they make it, it's because they just chose to go for it in the first place. Um, but I'm going to reverse that first question to, to you guys if I can. Which, what was, which one was the first the question, question again? Three things Lucy Davis was on, on the deathbed. Hopefully I'm gone before you, but um, <laughs> that you'd like to achieve by, by that time, that you'd be, like, you'd be able to tell people the three stories of things mm. that you want to achieve by the time you're on the deathbed. Definitely a, a family and kids. That's one right. of mine. Yeah. I'd like to summit a mountain because I've done a lot of ski mountaineering. Oh, okay. But not the scale of K2 or Everest because I don't want to be the one in three people who die yeah. because of the family. Yeah. But that's one of the things that I'd really want to do mm. um, again with my dad and my sister. Nice. And then a third one. Before you're dead, three things I want to do before I'm dead. Mm-hmm. So you got the mountain summit. You mentioned about the family. <clears throat> I can't think of it. You're going to have to. That's really. That, I've not you even know thought that's, that's a really, good, good I've, question. I've, I've never had it flipped question. on myself as a yeah. Have you not as a podcast? I think for for me, I'd like to leave like a bigger impact than I can, like something that I'll be remembered for doing in a in a positive way. Yeah, and that, I think that's difficult because in five thousand years time, no one will be no one will know who I am. Mm. I think. I'd like to, from a business perspective, I, I always viewed it, I think, in the wrong way. I was speaking to Cal about this the other day. Um, I think we do it a lot in society is we look at business, health, fitness yeah. as being very finite and we need that quick, immediate gratification, whereas mm-hmm. it's a long game. We need to, to, to be able to stick in it. And generally the people who are able to see it in that way yeah. are the winners of, of these games. So I'd like to stay in, in business. I'd like to stay in shape. I'd like to stay in, in what I'm doing now for as long as possible because it brings me a lot of happiness. It brings me a lot of joy. Nice, yeah. Um, That's a good one. And a third one. I have a third. I was going to go <laughs> back and forth here. I had, sorry, <laughs> I had a third. You on. sparked one of mine. Okay. Um, to ensure that by the time I am dead, yeah. that women in sport and women in fitness feel as comfortable as men. Okay, that's yes. very broad, but that's kind of like what I really focus on now is like getting young girls and women and feeling comfortable in the gym and sport. So that one, that's yeah, that's a really, really good hard one. one yeah. <laughs> but that one. And that's a really, that's an, another sort of globally meaningful one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. legacy. Mm. You yeah, inspired legacy. that one. Good. That's, Wow, third. that that question third, is yeah, it's difficult. Incredible. It's, a, it's a good one. That's a very good one. A third one for me. Kids. Yeah, I think that's a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah. I'm, bit, I'm trying to think kind of selfishly about something that I've wanted to probably tick off the bucket list as well. Yeah, and even like if you rewind back to 10 years ago, is there something that you still haven't done that you is was always big on yeah. your list back then, you know? I th- even something that's on my bucket list now, mm. and I think it's probably something that you've, I, I still want to have and do my first Muay Thai fight. It may not seem like a massive thing, but to yeah, me- Yeah, it's a big goal, it's, isn't it? Um, coming from someone who's like done a lot of different sports, got addicted to like bodybuilding, had poor relationships with food, mm-hmm. found a different way of exercise and training and moving my body, and really fallen in love with the sport. Also kind of the culture that comes around it, one of the things that is still on my bucket list now is to 
to do a Muay Thai fight. Yeah, and, um, nice. I think that's one of like my physical things that I'd like to do. You had the, the scaling down. What was it? Yeah, the the, mount, yeah. the mountain hike. I don't know. I, I don't me. know. Maybe I can't. Maybe like Mont Blanc or a bit higher. Either that, or I would like to go and do like a Thai camp. Uh, oh for, yeah. For, oh. For a couple yeah. Of Fly weekend. out to Thailand. And do yeah. one together. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> ace, wouldn't it? Yeah. Do walking, Thailand. Yeah. 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 And that's um, probably mine. Yeah. But you're such an inspiration, and I'm so pleased that we had you on the podcast. No, thank you for having me. I think yeah. people will take so much away from it, as you said you are still relatable mm. and what you said is incredible and i'm assuming so many people will be inspired from your stories I and so. where can yeah. they find you where can they find more of you uh, i'm on all of the social media um instagram tiktok youtube facebook uh, or just ashdykes.com and you can find them all there as well anyway it's and me. i do have a um a book as well called mission possible yeah where can people find that that's on amazon cool yeah but, um, it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you on, mate. And it's it's really interesting, like I said, to understand the psychology and the mindset that that sit behind mm. people like you. I think one of the things I probably didn't expect is for you to be as laid back, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, and yeah. The reason why I say that is because me and Lisa were speaking the other day, and it's interesting seeing these people who have achieved massive things, like yourself, Ross Edgley, Courtney mm. Dewater, who are who who you think are super militant kind of in person will be right. quite stay and aggressive but in retrospect they're very laid back about maybe a lot of other things in life yeah. which i don't know possibly plays in your favor in, in some of these bigger mm. challenges that you put yourself up against so it's yeah. been really refreshing as well to have you on yeah no appreciate it yeah and you're you're right with that as well with the whole sort of being out there on these sort of expeditions or as like with what ross does and similar mm. people i think the military mind will get you so far but you also really need that cheerfulness and positivity because that's actually what gets you through to the finish line awesome awesome but thanks for having me really appreciate, appreciate it, it it's been great fun thank you so much for everyone who's watching on youtube spotify listening make sure you tag us all and obviously keep giving reviews to the podcast because that helps helps us get amazing guests on yeah. as ash is and we appreciate all of you thanks guys bye thanks. that was awesome wicked mate. appreciate that, that. was